When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me for the 121st minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus Heat is. A senior editor at Bright Wall Darkroom. Just before we started recording, I uh, believe we were talking about like I was just going down the list of all every employee of Bright Wall Darkroom to get on this show. And uh, he's this particular employee, senior editor of Bright Wall Darkroom, is also a writer, director himself, um, and other fiction and playwriting, and so just sort of a, a complete all rounder. Uh, his name is Ethan Warren. Um, his film that he wrote and directed is West of Her. I haven't had a chance to see it in Oz, um, which I'm a bit devastated about, but I will seek it out. Ethan, welcome to One Heat Minute. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Thank you so much for having me. Did you call me an all-rounder? An all-rounder. Like I'm always looking for like a, a term to use for myself because I do. I um, I kind of do like a little bit of everything, and I like I'm Ethan, and I'm an all-rounder. Kind of works. That, that's okay. Look, it's an Australian sporting term. We talk about it. Just they're an all-rounder. So, and in other sporting codes, you, they're a utility. They can be put anywhere and do a really good job. So two, things you've, good, yeah. two things you've got there, utility and all-rounder from uh, the, an Australian, Australian sporting enthusiast around the world. All right, I'm using it. <laughs> Take it. It's yours, my friend. Look, we're here for the 121st minute. Um, uh, it's it, There's no... I just want to go right out in front street. If this is your first episode, welcome. And what you'll learn with this show is there are no bad minutes. There's no soft minutes. There's no minutes where nothing is happening. Every single minute has something that's interesting to be dissected for us to unpack. Um, and so what? without further ado, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sh- Ethan and I are going to watch this minute together, uh, and then we're going to dive into and unpack it together along with you guys. So take a listen and let's do it. How do you know it's blown? How can I trust it? Okay, you got him. Stay healthy. Charlene Sheridan. Rucker's got a safe house in Venice to stash her in. Our meal's transportation. When we're done here, get on the phones. Somewhere someone's trying to put it together for her. You don't believe Macaulay already had a getaway laid on? Sure he did. Now he needs another one. Would you trust yours after this afternoon? Motherfucker, where do we get him? He's a CI for burglary cop. Called in the tip on the bank. Oh, Neil McCauley. How much time we got? Eight, ten hours for him to set up a new house. After that, he's gone. Bye bye. Bang! (laughs) 
There it is, my friend. That was a ripper. And abs- I forgot. I actually sometimes forget how good minutes are and how they echo with one another. And that one is just so great for for all the things that it's doing between those two lead characters. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, you uh, sent me the the time codes for what we're going to be looking at, and the first thing I did was just jump straight to that minute, having not watched the movie in a long, long time. And I was like, oh, well, that's, we don't have that much to talk about. Oh, no. And then uh, the next day I went and I watched the whole thing in sequence. And I was like, oh, we have so much to talk about. <laughs> so we're in good shape. Yeah, we're, we're in good shape. This this great minute, it's one of those minutes where you see the you see the machinations of like several characters happening on screen and like, you know, key confidants or like fraternal characters in the movie. So, you know, Vincent seems to have a few of these guys like Casals and Drucker kind of take the Nate role for Neil, whereas Neil's guys... You know, there's not that same relationship, but where they where people ask his direct motivation. But like right now, you've got Nate going, "Is your route on?" He's like, "How do I trust it?" And you can see Nate firstly going, "Oh shit, this is going to be a lot of work for me." I love that. Like first, like, "Oh god, I'm going to have to build this whole new escape plan for him in ten hours." Um, and then the next thing is, "All right, well, yep, stay healthy." And and then so quickly you just go dive straight into an elevator we're not exactly sure where we are uh, in the in the grand scheme of the movie just at this minute and you get to see just how intuitive and uh, how, how well vincent and neil have intuited each other there neil already knows that the moves that one out is gone he can't trust it and he knows he's going to build one and he knows it's got to be quick because he knows these guys are going to be on his tail so cool Yes. And I love that line, stay healthy. Like every time I, I go back through this, like that is just such a great, like, you know, very specific euphemism for don't get yourself killed. <laughs> please, don't, please don't die. Please don't die. Yeah. So are you, Ethan, uh, and as a filmmaker and as a writer of and an all-rounder, is, it's... you know, is where is Heat on your list of movies that was, you know, rewatchable, uh, revisitable? Was it something, you know, is Michael Mann one of those sort of filmmakers that you identify with or, or have an affinity for? Or is this sort of one that, I know you said you didn't watch it for some time. Was it something that sort of came out of left field a little bit when I was uh, talking to you about it? Uh, so it's it's interesting. Um, I, I think this is a movie that um, I think just as like a, a cultural sort of uh, consumer, I, I have a sort of elliptical relationship with, if that makes sense, yes. where... Like from a really early age, like I knew that this movie existed because I knew that it was the movie where where Pacino and De Niro sit across the table from each other at a diner or a coffee shop. And I probably knew that before I had ever seen a Pacino or, or a De Niro movie. Yes. And so this this was this huge thing. And then I kind of had to like work backwards where I was like, OK, so it's one day going to be really important to me that there's a movie where these guys sit across from each other. <laughs> So now I need to watch their movies and then someday I will like appreciate this significance. And then I, I never got around to it until I was thinking about this. My best guess is that I saw it in college because when I was uh, a freshman in college, I was, uh, I guess, 18 uh, when Collateral came out. Yes. Uh, which was the, the Michael Mann movie with uh, Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. And I think I saw that movie three times uh, in that year. Yes. I just... Like I saw it and then I wanted to show other people and show other people. Such a rewatch, became... such a fun, entertaining, rewatchable, yes. like the pace is relentless. It's love, like it's a, it's a, a gorgeously shot movie too in the, in that digital sort of grainy digital, um, uh, ethereal way that it does it. Yeah. It's a, it's a ripper of a film. Well, and it was, it's this, um, new mode for Tom Cruise. Uh, you know, that was one of the, in, in that sort of, uh, zone where he was just reinventing himself like every time out. Yes. Um, 
it's like Silver Fox Assassin, Tom Cruise. It's, it's, I, I want to go watch that now. Um, and also, it occurs to me now, it was that era before streaming where we would all, yeah. we would go to college and we would each bring uh, along with like our handful of DVDs. And so there would just be those movies that you just put on every time you were like hanging out with people. And I guess that was it for me. It was collateral. Um, and so I, I probably found my way to heat from there. That's my best guess. And it's, <laughs> I think the best way that I can say it is I, I don't often have an affinity for perfect movies. And this is a, this is a perfect movie. Like <laughs> as, as we'll go on to talk about, like it is, it's the kind of movie that you can do like uh, whatever this is going to be like 170 hour podcast on, uh, where, where it's just put together so meticulously and so sort of gorgeously and it's so artful. And I, I often, uh, am more moved by like the, the weirdos in the, uh, in the toy box. Um, and so I think I saw this and I was like, yep, masterpiece epic. See I'm ya. done with that. See ya. <laughs> and, and now I'm going to go watch, you know, whatever, like uh, the the Jesus Christ Superstar movie uh, from the 70s for like the hundredth time. <laughs> that movie's crazy. <laughs> and I don't know why that's fine to my, that's my example of like my ultimate favorite crazy movie, but it is. Um, and so then I, I came back to it this time uh, and I, I watched it twice in the last week um, leading up to this. And, and it, it, when you... Uh, you know, invited me onto the show. It, it didn't surprise me that this is the movie that that you choose to dissect because um, I, I just know enough about it to know that there is this much to to dissect, and not every movie could could stand up to this. I've kind of been thinking in the past week, like if I were going to do this, what is the movie that could stand up to this kind of uh, treatment? And, and Jesus they were very, very Christ, cool. superstar! <laughs> Don't tempt me, man. Holy shit, that uh, would be a fun. Like you said that, I was like. I got distracted. I was like, oh my God, that would be a fun listen. I have two friends. I'm going to throw them under the bus on this podcast. Um, I have two friends, um, a really great Australian film critic named Lawrence Barber and a culture writer named Matt Whitehead. And they threatened to do like a year of a weekly podcast where every week they got drunk, like drinking wine and watch My Cousin Rachel with Rachel Weisz. And I said, I dare you. Like I haven't, I didn't like the movie is mediocre at best. In fact, some people would say it's a car, it's a complete car crash. But I'm like those two guys, that personality, that obsession. I think you're you're you're. I've watched this crazy movie so many times, and it resonates with me. Is that that's what's what's been strange about this podcast is that I was always the crazy person who obsessed with heat, and then it's only really like as more people have been dragged, my friends, my colleagues and compatriots internationally have kind of, you know, joined me on this journey. I'm like, no, it is a perfect movie. Like I thought that, I genuinely thought that there would be moments or sequences or patches of this film under the scrutiny that may not have hold up. But I'm now like at 100, you know, we're now at 121st minute together and I'm like, nope, no, it's, it's, there's still so, the the last 45 minutes of the screen time that we're about to see together pre-credits, there's, there's not a foot wrong. It's just incredible beat after beat after beat. And then these little sequences right, like right now where we're pivoting between different character motivations and watching the insights. Um, it's this perfect transitional moment. Well, and I think what's uh, kind of so um, almost seductive about the movie is it's, it is perfect, but it's also very unusual. Um, it's, it is, it is constructed like 
uh, you know, a fine Swiss watch, but it, it also isn't like sort of instantly uh, streamlinable when you, when you perceive it, because, uh, it, you know, it's so long, it's almost three hours long and it has these dual protagonists. And so I, it's kind of two movies in one, uh, where each of them is following their own three act structure. And I, I, when I rewatched it, uh, just, just today, I finished just before we talked, um, I, I was sort of trying to track the the three act structure, the arc, and and kind of figure out like who is the real protagonist of these movies between the two guys, and it is really interesting. You could kind of isolate the movie, uh, you know, pull it into to two different halves, and it would it would function as a story of of a guy, you know, a, a protagonist trying to evade his his antagonist, and so it it does. It functions as a three act story if you uh, sort of pull it apart as I, as I did like a huge, um, you know, structured dork. It works. It, 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 um, it falls in, do you know, uh, the, the book save the cat by Blake Snyder? No, I don't. Uh, well, so it is, it is the, um, sort of screenwriting manual, uh, that a lot of people kind of blame for like ruining Hollywood a little <laughs> okay. bit. Uh, cause Blake Snyder, he's the, the, uh, screenwriter of the movie, um, blank check. And a few others, and he was one of the big guys in the '90s who I know his uh, was, work. I know blank check from a, a video exactly. store, being a video store kid in the '90s. Yep, exactly same. Um, and and he was one of those guys who was um, sort of the king of the like spec script because yes. in the '90s, like you know, the script was was king. Uh, and he wrote this this uh, screenwriting manual that is um, very sort of slim, very readable, um, and and sort of has replaced Brian McKee's story. Yeah. For a lot of people as, as sort of the go to here's how you write a movie. And um, a lot of people hate the book. Uh, Blake Snyder, uh, unfortunately, is, is no longer with us. But um, a lot of people hate his book <laughs> because uh, it, it really uh, kind of has this very um, prescriptive approach to here's how you tell a story. And, and this is what happens at minute 10. This is what happens at minute 20. And your ideal movie has to be 110 minutes. And, you know, it, it, a lot of movies in the last 10 years really have had the stamp of, of save the cat on it. I think it's a really useful tool, this book, because it's a really great way of, of laying out how the most functional sort of ruthlessly functional three act structure works. And then you can, uh, sort of abstract it from there and, and, uh, sort of push its limits. And, and this is a movie that really does because it is not the ideal 110 minutes, according to not Blake Snyder. All. But it really does. It, it has the um, I, I sort of have it written down here, the, the act one, the setup, the catalyst, the debate, and then the moment of choice for both characters as they, they make the choice that brings them into act two. Act two, then, is, is the majority of the movie. Um, and it, it has the sort of fun and games. The promise of the premise is, is his term where, um, you know, it's just the, you know, sort of no strings attached fun uh, exploration of, of this premise of this cat and mouse game. Uh, the midpoint uh, where the, you know, the all is lost moment uh, where, you know, all of a sudden things are, are no, you know, it's not so much fun and games anymore. And that's, that's a lot of what we're going to be talking about with this minute. Um, yeah. It's the, that, the that we have, we have the, the, the eclipse of the heist and this is, you know, right on the, that sort of precipice of all of the fallout where all just, where everything's downhill from here. Right. And then act three of the movie is, is about 15 minutes. Yes. Um, and, and it's just, uh, it, most of it is, is just this wordless sort of chase through, uh, whatever that is like, like a landing strip. So all of that is, is a really long way to say, I think this movie is simultaneously perfect and weird. 
Yes. And I think that is, is what really makes it, um, you know, helps it stand up to the scrutiny that you in this project of yours are, are subjecting it to. Yeah, I think um, uh, I, I never I never begrudge, and this is maybe, I don't, I don't know if, if it's just my own personal style. It's like I never really begrudge when someone will write a book like a Blake Snyder. And I've heard that promise of the premise a thousand times. I just didn't actually know the origin point. So thank you. I now know where it's from. Um, but that the Save the Cat is like, it's 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 only bad and only people say that it's the death of the Hollywood movie. People keep buying scripts that are in the format of this thing. <laughs> like it's ruthless and it's probably done its examination, but it's probably just, you know, it's just chunking data about what successful movies have looked like and tried to simplify it into terms that people who are novices can understand so that they can like, spew it out into a template that kind of semi makes sense and then you take it somewhere else but yeah i tend to agree with you that you know one when you were just talking there a movie that struck me and you know talking about structure i think it would be a really fun editing exercise there have been a stack of editors i've spoken to on this show maybe that one day will feel like that this is the thing is could they edit this movie into like a butch cassidy and sundance you know where the villain is just unseen and like you're watching you know, like you're watching Neil just react to Vincent being around or you're watching Hannah like um, uh, reacting to this wraith that he just can't catch. And, you know, is and, and I when I try and unpack it in my head as someone who has done as much of this unpacking with this movie as I can, I'm like, you know, this pro, you know, with a few like weird pickup shots, like, you know, shooting behind over the shoulders, like literally like the still that we've ended on, on the, tw- you know, 120 second beginning, 122nd minute of just like a silhouette and a background. It's like, yeah, you're right. There's totally in, in amongst this movie, taking away from the, the more epic canvas and these other confluence of tales that are all about to sort of entangle here. It's a real fun cat and mouse game where you could just totally play it side by side, two sides of the coin, strip away the other ancillary information. But it's just, there's movies that exist like that. Totally. Know? And I, I'm, I'm wondering now, which is the more interesting movie? And I, I think it has to be the Neil movie, even though yes. I think if you have to isolate the protagonist of the movie, it's, it's the Vincent yes. uh, story. So, yeah. And there must be movies like that. Uh, well, like Butch Cassidy, as, as you just described, they were the, the sort of roguish, uh, you know, bad guy that you are kind of rooting for. You know, and and Neil is this very sort of root forable protagonist or antagonist. You know, the the scene where he's robbing the bank, and it's you know, we're not here for your money. If you have a heart condition, just go ahead and sit down. Yeah, yeah. You know, just it, take it, a seat. It's it's good. You can relax. As, I, as noble as you can be, as as a uh, as a bank robber, short of being Robin Hood. <laughs> yes, that's, that's it. Yeah, we're taking the bank's money. This is not your money. This is the bank's money. But right. uh, but if you stop us from leaving the bank, I will kill the, the implicit thing underneath Neil. And what I love about Neil is a as this really wonderfully ambivalent protagonist that we follow um, is that you are so with him, but some of his choices and particularly a, a, his mounting actions, you're like, this isn't a nice guy. Like, no, he's, he's he is not, not very nice. he is not very nice at all. <laughs> I think we can say pretty much, uh, you know, conclusively, this is not a movie about nice guys. No, it is not. Even Vincent is not very nice. No, Vincent's not wife. nice either. <laughs> okay. Um, so you know, uh, let's just get getting into the nuts and bolts of this specific minute. Um, uh, you know, as a filmmaker yourself, uh, I'm just really curious because the beginning frames of this minute, um. You know this. I, I I I've described it as like 
Neil's car almost looks like a lion or it looks like a panther that's illuminated in the in the evening as it's coming through. There's this industrial wasteland background and then you sort of cross-cutting and you can barely even see Neil in these things. Is is this sort of Neil that's enveloped in darkness, is this like man sort of being a little bit more obvious and grandiose with, you know, this guy is is this guy's ferocious, this guy's an animal, this guy you know this in his mode right now he's in hunt you know he's he's in predatory mode and he's going to take this thing down like whatever whatever he's going for whether it's Van Zant whether it's you know in this moment it is heading off for Van Zant in this moment this is kneeling is like you know nocturnal natural habitat or something like that that's what i kind of get all these feelings that i want to watch the opening of this minute i'm like this guy is you know this is not the same calm collected codified dude that we've maybe seen in other parts of this movie well, it's that's that's really the moment for both the characters, or or all three, um, if you if you count um, is it Cassells is that I pronounce uh, yeah, West Duty's character. All three of these guys. This is the moment that um, it is really not fun anymore, and um, you see it in the, the camera work very much. Uh, it becomes very uh, sort of stylized uh, in this minute in a way that it really rarely is throughout the rest of the movie. I, I focused less on Neil here because you're really you are seeing the car um, more so than him, and and then we we cut over to Vincent and and Cassell's very quickly. Um, but for all three of these guys, and you know, let's just call it <laughs> Neil and Vincent for the sake of uh, <clears throat> simplicity, they are both um, kind of to the extent that this sort of cat and mouse game has been a little fun up to this point. It is now uh, you know gotten much more serious and much more intense and they're both going off to kind of beat the shit out of somebody who is not necessarily the person that they want to beat the shit out of yeah yeah that's a great point um they they kind of have this uh this proxy character that they're now going after on their way to who they really want to beat the shit out of and and the sort of grudging respect that vincent has had for neil up to this point has now turned into this motherfucker um and as uh you can see as as vincent and cassells are are in the um elevator the camera is is very sort of uh handheld and and shaking and sort of almost swooning a little bit in a way that really i think puts you in the headspace of when you are so angry so upset that that you know you're sort of on the verge of passing out Um, (laughs) yes and i really i mean I, i feel like to an extent this is you know it's it's not exactly a love story between vincent and neil but there is the sort of sense in that diner scene of, you know, it's, it's sort of the classic dynamic of this movie is like, oh, you know, we're, we're sort of the, the uh, you know, light and dark version of the same sort of dynamic and we keep each other in balance. And, and I kind of wonder if Vincent is, has bought into that a little bit up to this point. And now it's, you know, because in the, in the previous scene in the shootout, um, Neil by sort of by extension has caused Vincent to kind of uh, do the one thing that he tries to avoid which is taking a life uh and and he's been put in that position taking a life in in the service of saving another life and we know from the diner scene that that they each have their two sort of nightmares and, and that's his is is feeling responsible for a death and so I, I think that is that's the real dynamic that i see in this minute obviously as, as that's the one i gravitated towards even as you asked an entirely separate question no no that's no it's interesting that you talk about that because 
I talked about it as like them and then like for Neil, it's in his natural habitat and Vincent, this isn't anger. So this is where I actually see a great contrast. So for, you know, when you went on to that other point, it's like, this is Neil doing something that, you know, in that moment, it is that sort of a bit of a romantic look at these two characters, but man is kind of making no bones about it in this minute that like Neil's a sociopath and he'll go and kill people and Vincent doesn't want to have to kill people, but now they're there being methodical, going through weapon, you know, getting their weapons and being ready just to, to tackle this next challenge like to whatever whatever this next challenge is they're going to tackle it and 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 it's going to be hostile and they're prepared and they're going to go and do it and then in that same moment you know vincent is frustrated he knows that neil's going to go he's intuiting what's going to happen and then there's a great moment like this is it's almost like vincent then re-channels neil he's like so when we get this rat fuck <laughs> like he's just yeah. like the the same thing of like these rats who these betrayers you know loyalty is a currency in insane, in insane, with insane stakes, life and death stakes on both sides of the coin here, um, and so the fact that he's betrayed him, exactly right. It just again is that exercising that frustration. I want to, I want to be stopping the guy who was the architect of that huge heist, and now I've got to go and mess with this little, you know, this rodent character. Um, even though it is the rodent is a giant, totally swole Henry Rollins. Spoilers for any of those. Has- has never looked more swole. Has, has, has any human ever looked more swole? <laughs> no. He's he, he doesn't even look I like think a person. There was a meme no of that guy with the neck. Like you remember that was like neck that neck guy that was like a meme for like a month or something like that. I think that that like as close to you know as close to Henry Roll at peak swollen. You know Henry Swollen's basically, but like he's wearing a turtleneck and it's so like. I don't know how it's going around his massive neck and traps. It's ridiculous. Um, but sorry, we're skipping into the next minute. Um, right. Well, and it's, it's yeah. <laughs> to, to go back, though, to, you, you mentioned the, the camera work and, and the Neil, uh, you know, in his natural habitat. And I think that is that's a really interesting point is the camera as Neil moves around is is very smooth. It's it's um, following his car primarily in this minute. Uh, it's it's very smooth and it's very um sort of it's this sleek you know he's like a shark moving through la yes. after his prey yes and uh and vincent is is uh, in this position of having been sort of thrown off thrown off his game so that is that's another sort of very small moment of i think visual contrast yeah and i i, I also like i love the contrast between um you know the, the the contrast in the collaborations in this minute is really cool because like Nate is the guy who you know he's he's the guy who's the front like literally is behind a bar you know doing nothing un, you know nothing untoward to external passers by just having a phone conversation behind the bar running the bar um, and Neil's the loner like Neil's out there he's just you know he's just dialing back into the office to get instructions and get things and Nate is just you know literally like a glorified secretary in there at the moment and that's like the the, the quintessential role of the fixer right they're in the they're behind the scenes they're not out there getting their hands dirty they're wheeling and dealing behind the scenes um, and so you get that and then conversely you know, going after Neil, Casals and Vincent are arm in arm. They're like right there next to each other, loading their goddamn weapons together, strategizing. And it's still in that, it's in that moment where maybe inadvertently the scales are tipping. Like maybe we've got this moment where Vincent's crew is still pretty much together. There have been a couple of casualties, but he's still got his like, he's still got his team that are coming. And, and that feels like the vice grip of this movie just starting to like, starting to get that tension. It's coming towards it. So you get these contrasts, the loner, the lone wolf, it's sleek, it's direct. He's like the shark. I love that. 
Um, you get the fixer there and then Vincent and Casale strategizing for this moment. And then still it's Vincent who's swelling up to be the, you know, the number one, the first guy through the door, but at least fortunately has Wes Studi behind him. Because you need, a, think you need a Wes Studi and, a, and an Al Pacino to take out a, a peak swallow Henry Rollins for sure. Yes, you do. Uh, two very craggy men, two men that you could just <laughs> just curl up in the, the folds of their faces. <laughs> I think I think it is essential that that uh, Neil and Vincent are always really in some form of balance, though, mm. and and right at the center of the movie where that diner scene is, where it's it's very close mm. to uh, sort of equilibrium, and then whenever one is up, the other is down, really throughout the rest of the story. Um, I'm glad I, I am glad we have a little bit of John Boyd in this minute, though, because he's excellent in this movie, absolutely. He excellent. is, and he looks like a. a you know, inhuman, like, you it know, was like cartoon. Of, yeah. Like what, what, what is that? Like makeup and, and costume design with his, it's, his this long hair. That's like not really a mullet. It's not really, it's just sort of a mane and he's got some kind of, some kind of facial makeup going on. And I just love that. Like he, you know, this character didn't need to look like, a. I'm sorry, but a monster <laughs> <laughs> does have a t- does have a touch of Charlene, Charlene, uh, Charlize Theron rather's uh, monster there. A little bit of sure, monster, totally. Yeah, and and I just I everybody else in this movie is pretty much styled like a person, and then they just <laughs> styled John Boyd like a like I don't know like a Tim Burton character. Well, we we talk about it in a, lo- a little more detail in other podcasts. Um, so I'll, I'll let Ethan in on the the backstory is that um, Eddie Bunker or Edward Bunker, who's the author of what Michael Mann calls like the quintessential book about American crime. Um, he wrote a book called No Beast So Fierce, which was actually his prescribed sort of library book for all the crooks um, and even the cops to learn about what the criminal underworld is. Eddie Bunker famously is, I think, one of the colors, the Mr. Colors in Reservoir Dogs. He plays a character, like the the least recognizable Reservoir Dog. That's him. That's Eddie Bunker. And he, he, okay. he dies early in the movie. Um, and he actually, um, his that no be so fierce book was adapted, and, and Michael Mann was involved in pre-production, was adapted into um, a movie called Straight Time with Dustin Hoffman. Oh, I love that movie. So that's the, that that's the Eddie Bunker backstory. And at the time, okay. Michael Mann uh, w- was using Eddie Bunker as a um, a technical advisor on the movie and was talking to John Voight because they're friends about being in the film. And he needed, and we talk about balance, he needed a, a real powerhouse fraternal character that people could believe would be coaching Robert De Niro, like uh, who in and of himself is like, you know, he's got like a gravitational pull, right? He's, he's, he's such a powerhouse when he's on screen. So they need someone to actually temper that for those sequences that he could look like he's getting advice from. Um, and obviously John Voight is this tall strapping man who's a little bit his senior. So it kind of worked in ages. And Michael Mann was like, I want you to do this part. And for the longest time, John Voight was like, why am I doing this movie? Why would I do it? Why don't you just get the guy? Like, there's the guy you're trying to make me up to look like. <laughs> Poor yeah. Eddie Bunker. There's the guy who's probably got, you know, a little bit of a um, scar tissue on his face and has a mullet and a moustache. Like, that's the guy. Why oh, now just... I'm just being so mean to Eddie Bunker. No, I think If you watch Reservoir Dogs, they take it to an, another level with, with his sure. makeup. To like, It's more about de-beautifying, you know, de-beautifying yeah. the gloriously beautiful John Voight at that time um, versus that. Debatable. And, 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 and so you, you need to, you need to do that. And so then 
um, yeah, so at the end of the day, Michael Mann said the great line, which I, I do like to repeat on this podcast because I think it's a pretty story. He's like, why don't you just get this guy to do the role? And he goes, because then we don't get to work together. That is very sweet. It is nice, right? So so in the same way, we get Nate in there and um, looking looking like hell. And he this is like um, a really weird gap in his career, which I think I break down in another upcoming minute with uh, Mr. Cam Williams. You guys might hear a little bit later. But yeah, it's a, it's a really it's a really strange one. It's a really strange piece of casting, but it's so pitch perfect. And I can't think of anyone that feels like De Niro would listen to. Like he takes Nate's advice. Oh, no, it's perfect. But I also find myself thinking like, you know, that like, John Voight like challenged him, make me look as weird as possible. And, and so he tried and he said, no, not weird enough. So <laughs> next time you got to do it better. And then Michael Mann said, OK, and he brought him back for Ali and put him in that horrifying makeup as Howard Cassell, <laughs> Howard Cassell yeah. where he literally doesn't look like a human being. <laughs> And not, maybe they'll do it again. Maybe next time he'll be, you know, high definition. A or high definition does not do anything for his his makeup, but the performance is terrific. Terrific performance it's, is how it gets. It's great. We, oh yeah, but I just every you know the whole time I'm just like, why did he have to wear the makeup? Why couldn't why? it just be John Boyd? I mean, you know, Will Smith doesn't look exactly like Muhammad uh, Ali. We'll save that for Ali minutes. Uh, no, there unequivocally, there is no. There, I'm, I'm telling you guys, and I love you all who are listening, every listener to this show, there's no more Michael Mann minutes after this for me, for this guy. Okay. No the keep minute? No the keep minute. No one keep minute, even though it does have a nice ring to it. No, there's no more Michael Mann minutes. But, uh, and that's just from me hosting. If there are other people, even people who've been guests on this show, want to take... Uh, want to take the reins of their own uh, Michael Mann Minute podcast, you can call me anytime to be a guest. I'll happily pop in. But this is, for me, you know, I think as Ethan has already said, it's it's even though it is an unusual movie, it is the perfect movie. And uh, I just don't think that there's any other... I don't think I could... Uh, I don't think there's another Michael Mann movie that I would have wanted to talk about first or ever as much as this movie. Right. Well, this is, I mean, this is the ultimate, this is the Michael Mann movie. I mean, what else, you know, what else could compare? There's, there are other, I think, interesting points of comparison in his filmography. Um, I think Thief and Miami Vice are both sort of, uh, you know, sort of interesting contrast points, but, you know. The Insider is probably another one that I would say in that group. There's like that that uh, quartet that you just mentioned, you know, making a quartet of heat, Miami Vice, Thief and The Insider. They're all phenomenal films and there are probably others that they're probably my top four um in in man's filmography i i, I adore them um but uh, but you know this is he is like he does no, like, another level yeah it's on another level it's on a completely other level well and how many movies are there that that could really be called crime epics i mean that's what this is called right this is the yes. the crime epic and you know I, I was thinking about other movies that are kind of of the same um, length, like, uh, you know, the departed is not too far off. Yes. Uh, and, and has some similar, you know, sort of dynamics and elements, but you never hear that described as a crime epic. No, you hear people so, bitching about a rat at the end of the movie. A rat. Like, Jesus, yes, let it go. <laughs> if you're listening to that in the future, this, if you're listening to this episode in the future, <laughs> that, that was the week that this all just came <laughs> up again. But I think, I, I think part of what for me, I mean, you know, these are very similar movies. They have huge casts. They have huge runtimes. They are cat and mouse stories of, of you know, crime that, that are as much about a city as, as the characters. 
But I think what this movie has that a lot of others like it don't is this sort of um, ebb and flow of uh, of tone. And this is a movie that's really not afraid of stillness and quiet. That's something that I really appreciate about it. And yes. For me, that's that's what makes it an epic, you know, like it, you look at Batman versus Superman, another extremely long movie. Uh, <laughs> nobody calls that an epic. And it's it's because it's just pummeling you with with input at all times. And and The Departed is is similarly. It's a very sort of kinetic movie that is all up. And this is a movie that that, you know, sort of rises and falls. And, and there are long, long periods that are just very still and quiet and really let you absorb the sort of weight of everything that's happening. And I think that The Departed knows how much it's trying to throw at you. Um, so it has to try and maintain momentum. And I think the bits that end up being the best parts of The Departed are the, are the more still and quiet bits. You know, like Jack Nicholson sketching like rats running from plague fire, like at, at, in, a, in a weird bar scene, like this dirty, down and dirty bar where he's asking Leonardo DiCaprio's Billy Costigan about you know, like, is he the rat? I think there's a rat. We need you to hunt down the rat, etc. And then he walks away and Billy's going to be getting some instructions from, um, from French. Um, and he's there and then he comes back and he reaches over and grabs his cigarette and says, I'm oh, sorry. But that's what I love about heat. I love the space. I love the, I love the, you know, you talked about the layering and you talked about these, you know, these parallel protagonists and how there's an entanglement of those two things and structural perfection and I just think that when you when you look at those just those streamlined elements of the movie, it's how the other bits layer. And so you as a as a filmmaker and as a playwright and as a fiction writer, and also as an editor, just of stories or essays and things, the artfulness of layering in digressions. And I don't mean to say digressions in a in a negative connotation, but that's what they are. Like the digressions from this propulsive momentum. I, they're the bits where the movie for me, like, it just allows you to just get that tension and, and you know, we're in a, it's a really tense movie to watch in a theater. It's an insanely tense movie over the duration of the movie. And I think some of these digressions and things like that, are, they help to kind of allow you to just take a breath and be immersed in a moment and then get back to what the epic is like unfolding in front of you. And so in this well, moment, I think, it, this yeah. is where you're picking up the pace again. It's like, all right, here we go. On to the next thing. Yeah. I'm going to spitball a metaphor here, and it might not quite work, but when, uh, you know, thinking of tension, you know, the, something again like The Departed is it's a very maximalist movie. Yes. Um, and so it, it is, um, I don't remember really the still moments looking back on it. It's been a while. But if you're trying to keep somebody on the edge of their seat, the, the metaphor that I just thought of is it's like fishing. Yes. Where if you if you get a bite on the end of the line, you, you can't just, uh, you know, sort of jerk the line as fast as possible because you're going to lose the fish. You have to sort of let it have some slack and then reel it in a little more slack. And that's what this movie does is it really, um, it, it is very finely calibrated and it really plays you. Um, and, and sort of it's, it's almost three hours long and it sustains you over that time and ranks, uh, ramps up the tension without ever doing it so much that it just sort of overloads your brain and, and turns you off. Yes. I, yeah, I can't. I can't think of. There's not too many movies. There's not too many movies that do that really well over a long period. There are a lot of crime movies that, at even seventy minutes, I'm like, what is going on? Like, <laughs> what is happening? I'm, I'm, I don't know about you, but I'm incredibly impatient with like a poorly calibrated crime movie because I'm just like, yes. 
you do they how many times have they done this you know the genre elements we're playing with it's tried and true it's the most exhaustively examined genre pretty much of all time like even though it has its digressions in sci-fi which you know sci-fi crime thrillers or whatever like noir etc it's it, it it's a genre that's tried and true like it doesn't the layering in of additional elements and you know socio-political um modernized socio-political input or race relations or you know um you know the political climate etc you know those things or reflexively looking back at the past and you know revising history etc you can play all those games but like if you can't keep pace with what needs to happen it's like and in this movie the pace at least for the first sort of 15 20 minutes of the movie is absolutely relentless really like you're there you don't know what's going on you know there's people stealing things there's vincent in 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 bed with a woman and you're like oh my god this is you know a bit of a you know um uh, intimate sex scene and then you know then the opening heist then the investigation and then you know all the other things just start ramping up and then and then and then it just keeps ramping up and and then it allows you the big lovely you know emotional backbone of the movie with a lot of interactions and people talking and character motivations but you get to know so much about the characters in just those opening stanzas but like and and here this is a good pivot moment you know this is like momentum building but you know time's running out for now in this moment yeah yeah and and we should get back to the minute a little bit um because i've just gone so far afield but uh the other person that's the that, I, that we haven't talked that's, enough about. That's the de- <laughs> that's yes. the there you go. We, 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 uh, we, we go to the minute, we go through it, and we come back. Yes. But we didn't talk uh, at all about, about Casals and West Studi, and he's, he's the one who has you know, uh, the, the most screen time in this minute, along with, uh, with what do you call him, uh, Vincent. Um, and so re-watching it uh, just this time um, today, I, I – uh, was really uh, sort of looking for for him every time he was on screen. I was watching him, and I feel like I was, you know, maybe just sort of inventing a, a narrative backbone for him. Um, but it, you know, it, maybe I'm completely off base. I haven't watched this movie nearly as many times as you do. But uh, Casals is sort of very slowly stepping into the world of the movie, scene by scene. Does that sound sort of on base? Yeah, 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 yeah. Go, keep going. Yeah, you know, he's. <laughs> I'm very afraid of being wrong because I listened to the I, should say, I, I, uh, I listened to the Connor Ratliff episode, and right at the top he was like, "I saw this movie four times in the theater," and I was like, "Oh no, <laughs> I've only seen this movie once before I agreed to this." Uh, so I'm very afraid of being wrong and making somebody mad at me. No one but, is going to uh, be mad. You're in the safest place with the person. I would say, I've seen this movie almost as much as any person could have seen it, so it's okay. okay. Well, then I heard Fran's episode. She said it was the, the first time she'd seen it. And I was like, all right, I'm, I'm going to be okay. <laughs> so my point is, uh, if you look at the first time we see Casals on screen, he is just a desk jockey and he's providing information to Vincent. Uh, second scene is, is much the same. Uh, then there's a scene where I think in the stakeout, we then see him in the field for the first time, but he's, he's very passive. Uh, when we see him in the... Uh, the, uh, there, I think there's a scene where, where Pacino says something about uh, a woman's uh, rear end. I don't know if you remember that moment. It's very easy to miss. Uh, in, in the great ass scene, uh, he is standing in the back with a little handgun and just sort of, um, you know, playing with it a little bit. Uh, and and uh, then the, the scene that really uh, next uh, is he's on screen when um, 
we're getting ready to go to the to the bank robbery scene uh, and he is now much more active he's getting information he's running and then there's the sort of foot chase moment right before everything goes terrible right before it becomes this huge shootout and as he's running you see west studi has this little smile on his face that's very guileless and very excited and so i i kind of see it as as this guy who is you know often stuck behind a desk throughout this story has been slowly sort of getting a little more energized and more involved in the field work. And then, uh, you know, there's this shootout and everything goes terrible. And in this minute he is, uh, you know, I, I kind of envision it as, as this similarly like heartbreaking thing of like, Oh, I was, I was sort of caught up in the excitement of this and no, this is very serious. And now, you know, I've got this, you know, whatever shotgun, terrifying shotgun that I have to go wield. I, I I completely agree. I think there's there's a implicit hierarchy that's happening in Vincent's team. And I hadn't put it in those terms before about watching him get drawn in, but he becomes a, a huge part. You know, the, at the beginning of the movie is Drucker and Bosco, and we have to watch unceremoniously Ted Levine's Bosco, like with, you know, in quite a horrific death. Like he dies and he has this horrific death mask, you know, final look on his face, um, which is all the more traumatic. And and we see then, you know, a drug, it becomes like a Drucker and Casals show. Like, they chase down the car and are firing off these pump-action shotguns rounds that stop the car in the middle of the heist. And in this moment, you know, Drucker being the sort of stand-in number two who elevates in the crew, the next thing is that, you know, Casals becomes the new number two, you know. Um, oh, sorry, the number three guy in this crew. So, you know, he then steps up and, and now you know, this guy who maybe looked like a desk jockey. It's funny that you said that he's sort of drawing himself into the movie as he's like pump, you know, there's a very sort of um, methodical business-like organization of like loading shotgun rounds, getting ready to go. And then there's kind of studio. I don't know if it's just like this, if it's a character choice or if it's just him sort of um, uh, not being aware that he's doing it, but he's tapping away at the shotgun in the scene, almost like it's a cello. Huh, sort of just doing this little this little thing. So it's quite when you were talking yeah. about being drawn in, I'm like there's a bit of a music to what, what what you're saying and how he's doing it is because he's like he's in the scene, he's ready to go and, and he doesn't have as much excitement, but there's a you know, there's I something. didn't notice that. Yeah. But if if you look back at the the um the Hank Azaria scene that I mentioned, the great ass scene, because <laughs> what else could you call it? He is um he, he's really uh, playing with the gun, running his fingers over it in a similar way. It's this this tiny little handgun. Um, I think sort of a snub-nosed pistol, uh, if that is the right term. Not a gun guy. Uh, and the other thing about him in this scene is is uh, he is talking so fast in this minute that I turned on subtitles to try and catch everything he's saying, and the subtitles don't write down everything he's saying. It's, it's <laughs> dropping words. And I just really liked that. I didn't. I, I. I may. I might be just stuck in the cadence of this movie. I catch it all. Yeah. I. I. I maybe I need to sure. redo the subtitles afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I need to redo it. I mean. I mean. I mean every scene. But no, that's a well, great you, point. He's, you know he's what's, such what's a great. Happening. Yeah, and and he's such a great character actor. Like he's such an. You know, whenever he pops up, he delivers in any capacity in huge, you know, antagonist roles, dances with wolves, last of the Mohicans, um, in, in just like phenomenal supporting roles like this. Like, I think he's just that guy. And like you said, he's got that crack, that, that craggy face, that face is just perfect amount of craggy, you know, like that. I've got all the experience in the world for this scene. Well, I'm looking at his, his, uh, resume right now. Cause he is, he is just such a, that guy uh, yes. actor for me. Cause, I could just I, I always lose his name every time, just classic like that guy character actor, but you're always so happy to see him when he shows up. Yes. Absolutely. 
Well, well and but the, that thing you said about uh, you know I, I catch it all. Don't lose sight of what a dense movie <laughs> this is. <laughs> I, I I hate to tell you I have no idea what the Van Zant story is. That's this time I was like. I'm going to get it. I am going to figure out what's going on. And it just all completely washes over me. Yeah. Like, I, I think these, I think great movies like, like this, um, I think sometimes like people make an assumption and maybe it's just because of like how quickly we consume stuff and cast it off. It's like, I definitely didn't know what the hell was going on the first time I watched heat. I was like enamored by the action and the bravado and the coolness um and and just i was shocked like it was like shocking violence instead of cop movies like you know at the same time you've got a movie around the released around the same time called desperado and you couldn't have too stark a contrast with gunfights like desperado is this beautiful lyrical you know um uh, when uh, uh sort of almost like hong kong style mexican gun fighting you know like people are diving through the air in slow motion and everything's beautiful antonio banderas couldn't be more beautiful if he tried at the time it's like peak beauty of him and salma and you come to heat and it's completely different so yeah i definitely didn't know and i think that that's what's so rewarding about these big movies like you miss whole storylines you miss whole characters and their significance in these big epics like the first watch because you like you, you don't quite glean everything there um but in this show like when you put anything under this level of scrutiny, you're going to get every single detail. I think uh, I don't begrudge those who haven't seen this movie nearly as much as me, but that's why it's fun. We can go into this because you picked up a, you picked up the level of involvement that I hadn't really articulated yet about Wes Studi because I always talk about him as a phenomenal character actor and just having something about that experience that's in his eyes that just, I don't know, makes it every scene that he's in, Especially when you watch in the in the in the great R scene, when he looks over, I'm just flabbergasted that he and um, McKelty Williamson, who plays Drucker, don't just laugh their asses off. Like I'm, I I want to yeah. see every take where they lose it at Pacino just going off the rails. Like they are seriously good guys to to just like hold firm and just be these stoic pillars behind his nonsense. It's great. Well, this is such a sort of crucial moment, I think, for Pacino, like sort of right before we lost him to just, you know, total ham sandwich mode. (laughs) And and even in this minute, there is a little bit where he's like flying off the rails the way he says bye bye. Bye bye. Gone. Bye bye. Yeah, it's it's like he is just sort of flirting with that like big screamy mode that that he lapses into in the great ass moment. And, and you know, I would I would never begrudge Al Pacino having his fun with a line reading. And and <laughs> I think this is there's this is a movie where he is constantly sort of tap dancing, you know, across that line. And and you know, I, I'm sure everybody who does this show wants to talk about the diner scene a little bit. But what's really remarkable about that is it's these two guys who can so often and and did so often later on uh, go on to this really hammy mode are are just both so sort of still and precise. And I I was just thinking like, you know, when did we lose this Al Pacino to like Jack and Jill? Oh my God. Yeah. That's, and I think you, you talked exactly about people who are the casual viewer of heat that I ever encounter when I tell them about this show, which is like, Oh, you know, that's where Pacino says great ass and stuff on like, like that. And, yeah. and I always go, yeah, I, I go, well, if you watch the movie again, just take down two scenes. One starts at the 89th minute. I can tell them unequivocally when it starts. I'm like, right? one yeah. starts at the 89th minute, goes about to the 96th minute. Watch, watch two of the greatest American actors of all time from the same school of thought and same school of practice going toe to toe with one another, acting and reacting to each other with massive massive corridors of silence 
underplayed dialogue, like less taking, they took things away from the shooting script to, to say less, editing and intuiting things from their own characters and just being these just like shadow. It's like, it's, it's so, it's so intuitive that it's like shadow sparring. It's literally like acting across from yourself. And that it's one of the greatest scenes ever. And I think that that stillness is there. And I think the rest of the moments then when he starts to ham it up, I always look at Vincent and the the way that Pacino reads Vincent in sequences and in scenes. When he starts to fire up, it's always when he's about to encounter a crook that he has to get over. Like when he's trying to impose yeah. his will, he starts to get that fired up. That the bravado comes back, all that you know, all those silly you know silly line readings and things like that. Um, but it's all for that intimidation. It's to be unpredictable, and so I just love it. And then the final scene in across, I think it's the hundred and sixty fourth and fifth minute. Don't quite you can quote me on that. Is um. Vincent's reaction to Neil, like to to the climax of this movie, you know that I, I think that's some of Pacino's best acting ever, and he he doesn't he I think in that well maybe about eight minutes he says one word which is yeah, and that's yeah. it, and yeah, uh, yeah like the, the, then that guy goes off and wins Oscars for Scent of a Woman or you know one wins Oscars for Scent of a Woman does Jack and Jill does other crazy stuff but right. you know to be reined in and to just trust that on that canvas he can do it just as good as anyone has ever done it. Um, well, yeah. I'm, I'm looking at it here though. This is, this is a very, it's a precise moment for him because his previous movie two years earlier is Carlito's way Correct. where he is, he's, he's pretty, you know, I would, I wouldn't call much about that movie subtle, but he's, <laughs> he's not unsubtle in it. And not then unsubtle. his next, his next major movie two years later uh, is, is the devil's advocate. So this might be where we lost him. Yes. It's the moment. It's the nexus. Yeah. Well, even more importance for this this movie you've devoted your life to. Even more. Well, with that devotion, Ethan Warren, <laughs> thank you so much for being a part of One Heat Minute. Um, folks, if you want to follow Ethan, best place to find him is at Ethan R. A. Warren on Twitter um, or at EthanWarren.com. And obviously, he's a senior editor at Brightwall Darkroom. And if you don't have... I should a... say, it's it's actually, it's EthanRAWarren.com. Ethan Warren is, is a pretty common name, and I think there's an Olympic swimmer. So I've kind of had to... <laughs> Sorry, Ethan... My, my... I yes, misre- even I- R. A. Warren, my two middle initials are, are in most of my handles. I, 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 I missed that one. So, yeah, Ethan R. A. Warren. But I'll put that up on One Heat Minute and also put in the description of the episode you guys are listening to. Bright Wall Dark Room, he's a senior editor. It is worth your money to be a uh, uh, supporter, I think you guys call it, or a subscriber or whatever it is where you pay a little bit of money so that you can read all of the incredible articles there. So do that. Um, it's definitely worth your while. And, uh, Ethan, man, thank you so much for being a part of One Heat Minute again. Thank you. This was a really cool exercise. You know, it's, it's not often that you get this opportunity to talk about a minute for an hour. So, thank you. This is really cool. Well, welcome. Welcome to this exercise and thank you for being a part of it. Guys, as always, I'm Blake Howard at Blake is Batman on Twitter. OneHeatMinute.com um, is uh, is the place you can find everything about the show. Um, and uh, if you want to get in contact with us, um, please mail at oneheatminute.com is where you can send anything through or just hit me up on the Twitters. We have many um, great notes and usually I'll do like a mailbag at the beginning of an episode if there's some really great stuff. So send things through whenever you can. Um, Should really- I send in some mail for you to read at the beginning of, uh, of this episode just no. to get even more of me? <laughs> we can. Oh, you can come back. There's always more episodes sure. to come, Ethan. There's always more. Um, guys, thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing and uh, thank you, Garth Franklin, for our web design. Mr. Paul Davies for our awesome theme. And thank you guys for listening. And uh, we'll catch another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner. Bye-bye. Stay healthy.